theology alert. This episode of the Bellator Christie podcast will deal with some deep theological truths. This is going to be an episode you're going to want to take notes and go back and possibly listen to several times. So sit back and relax and enjoy this edition of the Bellator Christie podcast. Celebrating two years of podcasting and online ministry, you are listening to the Bellator Christie Podcast, where we take Christian truth into the arena of ideas. Now join your hosts, Dr. Brian Chilton and Curtis Evelo. Coming to you from Pilot Mountain, North Carolina, and Ronan, Montana. This is the Bellator Christie Podcast, where we uh, take Christian truth uh, into the arena of ideas. And we're coming to you from a very cold time in both uh, North Carolina, but nothing close to what they're experiencing up in Montana. Uh, Curtis just showed me his phone, and oh my goodness, uh, I thought we were getting hit with a cold blast. I think, was it supposed to be negative two next Tuesday? Yeah, negative two and negative uh, negative two, negative three, and then it's supposed to be down in uh, minus eleven, minus twelve uh, for the nights and stuff. So, yeah, it's gonna get cold, and then the the wind chill is what what really um, what really gets hard. Uh, it's really um, it, that's really kind of the more more of the detriment. I mean, just the static cold. Um, you can kind of function and get through that, but when it's so dang windy, um, you got all the snow we've been getting blowing plus, uh, plus the, uh, the below zero wind chill, uh, really makes it difficult. So yeah, it's, that's a, that's a joy, but it only, it only lasts for a little while. You know, what's funny is summertime always, always shows up. So yeah, that's exactly right. I'm holding out hope that, uh, summer will quickly get here. In fact, I was telling someone the other night, the other night or the other day, I said, uh, you know, we haven't even officially started winter, and I'm already ready for for spring and summer. So, yep. <laughs> yep. Well, ladies and gentlemen, I don't know. I, my name is Brian Chilton. Curtis Evelo here with you today. I don't even know if I introduced us. We are excited about this episode today because we are t- discussing a deep, deep topic. So, we want to give you a theology alert. As we start this podcast, this is going to be a deep one, and this is going to be an episode, as Curtis has advised on many of the episodes we've recorded, uh, this is going to be one that you're going to want to listen to, take notes, and maybe go back and and listen to again, because we're going to be hitting some deep issues, and so uh, to be able to get through this in an hour time frame, we're going to try to get through it in an hour uh, you know, we'll have to we'll have to hit it and get it, you know, pretty hard. But uh, we've got some deep stuff. Hopefully, hopefully this is going to make sense. Hopefully we clearer than mud <laughs> as we go mm-hmm. through this episode tonight. But uh, if you do have any questions, if you're with us on the live feed, by all means, uh, s- submit your questions on the Facebook account 
We're watching both Facebook and our YouTube account as well. Mm -hmm. And so if you have any questions, please post them in the comment box and we'll try to address any question you may have at the end of the podcast. And um, so we want to say a a big hello to my good friend, Philip Atkins. Uh, He said, hey, Ryan, good to see you all tonight. Looking forward to learning something new. So uh, got some great stuff coming up on tap. And so looking forward to tonight's episode. So, again, this, just to give you a theology alert that we're going to be covering some deep stuff tonight. Uh, so this will be an episode that you want to go back and revisit uh, even after we've completed uh, the, the podcast tonight. So, Curtis, we'll flip it over to you, my friend. Well, I was just going to say um, I did share the YouTube link to our Facebook feed of Bellator Christie just now. So. If by chance there's anything that kind of goes funky with uh, with the Facebook feed or whatever, pop on over there to the YouTube or just go ahead and follow the YouTube uh, feed because then you can get the notifications and the bell and, and so on and so forth. And then uh, we can move from there. So, um, yeah. But, Thank you for uh, mentioning that, Curtis. And we also want to we do want to encourage people to to subscribe to our YouTube account because we're actually yep. trying to build our viewership and uh, subscription base for the YouTube account. So the more yeah. subscribers we have, uh, the more we can do with yeah. that account. So yeah. Be yeah. sure to tell your friends. Yeah. It's kind of like uh, sometimes the, the, you know, we're only limited so much with the, with the smaller feed, you know, with the smaller amount of, of subscribers and the more subscribers we get, the better off it is on our end, because then we actually have a little more freedoms, and a little more liberties to be able to just be able to get it out there to you. Um, so yeah, no, I, I, I totally uh, think that uh, today is one of those things, Brian, where it really wouldn't hurt to grab a notebook and just write uh Right on the top of the notebook, um, you know, uh, Calvinism, Arminianism, and Provisionism, and Molinism, right on the top of it, and just say, and it's, and use this as a notebook for yourself to go back to and actually take notes in this, and um, you know, then then you can go back and and look at this yourself and and follow along uh, scripturally and see where we get these points and where these uh, theologians had. You know what was funny, Brian? I was listening to, just kind of doing some other research, and I was listening to a podcast. I won't mention the name of it. But they said that really the other side of this, Calvinism really only holds about 20 to 30% of the of. Of uh, of the Christian faith right now, as far as wow, yeah. So so historically, and you're going to speak on that. I don't know if it's going to be today or l- later on, but you're going to speak on that sometime about how the early believers, the early church, earlier than 500 years ago, early church held more towards a Armenian type view or. I know it's yeah. Let, let's let's go ahead and handle that head on. Well, let me go ahead and first of all uh, explain what we mean by Calvinism and non-Calvinism. I think that would be helpful sure, as we yeah, get started. Absolutely. So, so Calvinism comes from John Calvin, uh, who was a Protestant reformer, French reformer at that, and he held that um, God elected before the foundation of the world who He was going to save and whom He wasn't. Right. 
and that people don't have the opportunity to respond to the grace of God, uh, but they merely follow whatever God's elected plan was for their life. So this is called a deterministic viewpoint, meaning that uh, the viewpoint holds that we don't have any freedom to respond to God or reject mm-hmm. God's grace, but that we basically follow our predetermined plan that God has set before us. And so on the on the one side, if you're elected to go to heaven, uh, then, then you're blessed uh, because you could never not go to heaven. Uh, but if you're not part of the elect, then no matter what you do, no matter how good of a life you live, then you're still condemned for eternity and never had an option to do otherwise. And so those who are non-Calvinists believe that Christ, Christ's death was sufficient to atone the sins of everyone in the world, mm-hmm. but is efficient to, to atone those who respond positively to his grace. By the way, let me say that this is not only Arminianism we're talking about, even though uh, this is not our, only Arminianism, this is also this also includes Augustinianism. Even though he had Augustine had a viewpoint of election, uh, he still believed in the freedom of the will to respond to God's grace. Thomas Aquinas most certainly agreed mm-hmm. that we have the ability to respond to God's grace or reject God's grace freely. That God freely gives to us. And then, of course, Arminianism, Wesleyanism, and Molinism really advocates the whole notion of human freedom. So we're talking about non-Calvinism. We're talking about the camp of those who are not deterministic but believe that God gives us the ability to respond to his grace or to reject his grace and that God's desire was that everyone would be saved, Mm -hmm. but he respects the decision of anyone who rejects the grace that he gives, that he places upon them. And there are different interpretations on how this works uh, in the non-Calvinist paradigm. So there are many camps involved in the non-Calvinist uh, group, but um, but we're just advocating a position that is not deterministic and, and really, I think, shows that God really, truly loves uh, every person he creates. He's not, a, he's not a respecter of persons. He's not partial. Uh, but his he his desire was to save everyone, but he realizes that not everybody will respond to his grace. So that's what we're dealing with. When we talk about Calvinism, we're talking about a very deterministic philosophy, uh, a very deterministic approach to the scripture. Yeah, yeah. And, and to your point, and I about forgot this, you were talking about the early church. The early church, the first 300 years or more, uh, up until late Augustine, the early church held to a strong non-Calvinist position. It wasn't until Augustine's uh, debate with Pelagius that uh, that there were there were some individuals who began to accept a more deterministic uh, viewpoint of salvation. And uh, but even Augustine was open to the freedom of the will. So even Augustine of Hippo was not the determinist. He he had in, he, he kind of leaned in that direction. But he was not as deterministic as some camps later became. So just for our listeners and viewers, the time frame of that. And when we talk about um, the early church, you were saying, you know, up to the 300s when you were talking about Calvinism. Calvin wasn't alive then. He was alive no, later no. on, and yeah. so we're, right. we're just using that as a 
reference we're, word. We're, we're using that. Yeah, we're using that as a reference point because Calvin didn't come until a thousand or more years after Augustine mm-hmm. lived. But when we talk about Calvinism, we're talking about that deterministic mindset because there were flare ups where there was more deterministic camps throughout church history, but it really, it didn't seem like that that really took hold until after Augustine's, uh, until his debate with Pelagius, where he was uh, fighting against Pelagius. And so that's a whole other topic about the the, uh, controversy that's going on there. (laughs) Let me just simply say here, Pelagius's error was due due uh, to the fact that he was, uh, advocating a position that indicated that we could save ourselves, that we didn't need the grace of God. And there's no one in any of the camps that we're talking about here today would ever accept that as truth. Right. Uh, everyone is going to right. say that we need the grace of God to be saved. Right. So no one is going to accept uh, that position whatsoever. Yeah. Yeah. Very good. So, uh, I guess there is some there is some uh, heretical religions that hold to that view, but not yeah. orthodox within the orthodoxy of Christianity. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. So uh, let's just get rolling here. What is meant by predestination and election? So predestination comes from the Greek word proorizo. Uh, I hope I'm pronouncing that right, which means to choose beforehand. Uh, Predestination is the foreordination of certain ends by God's divine will. So it's God's choice to do certain things in the future. Election is understood as God's choice of certain things in the future, certain individuals for certain roles Mm -hmm. or certain ends. And when it comes to salvation, predestination and election uh, refers to the understanding of God's choice of individuals to be saved prior to the creation of the world. And it may, res- it may surprise people to learn that both Calvinists and non-Calvinists hold to a viewpoint of predestination and election to a degree, but the difference lies in the means by which God makes his choice. And that's really at the heart of the controversy when we talk about uh, Calvinist interpretations of predestination and election and non-Calvinist interpretations of predestination and election. So there you, there's, there's a little bit of uh, Greek words in there that we're going to be trying to, um, uh, I guess, one, decipher and be able to, you know, point out, but also um, want people to really understand that they're the, these Greek words um, as we point them out, they are used um, to help us uh, dig through because, you know, the, the these writings were written in Greek, correct? Oh, absolutely. And so it's important. For, I mean, even even though very few people have a complete understanding of uh, of the Greek language in the biblical languages. Now there are some out there. My my dissertation chair is one of them. He can take a Greek New Testament and read it like it's an English translation. Oh but it is important for us to know, as the Chicago Statement of Biblical Inerrancy holds, which I do hold it to be true, uh, that uh, the original manuscripts uh, were inspired, infallible, and inerrant. And so it's important for us to understand 
what these words meant in their original languages as we try to understand the interpretation of these terms and to uh, and to really understand what the text is telling us. Yeah. Yeah. So we're going to try to get through that because um, you did take some Greek in your in your uh, biblical studies and stuff, but you weren't, um, you know, to the level of, of being able to read fluent well, as fluent. Well, yeah, there's there's there are different levels. Uh, there are mm-hmm. different levels. So, yeah, I have a I would have a reading comprehension of Greek, uh, where I could read, uh, passages in, in Greek text. Uh, but I would not be by any means a master of, of the, of the biblical languages. I mean, th- I, I don't really think that you're a master until you're really able to, uh, do like what Dr. Purser can do and take a Greek, a New Testament, read it like it's an English translation and do the same thing in Hebrew. So yeah, the, with any, any language, even with English, like the English language, there are, um, multiple variations of of knowing knowing the language, but yeah. as far as knowing Greek, yes, I know Greek. But am I a scholar at Greek? No, I right. can't say that I am. <laughs> right, right, right. Yeah, right. <laughs> having a huff, enough hard, uh, having a hard enough time with my own language. So, <laughs> well, yeah, I, I'm the same way when it comes to English. That's true. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. So. What is the difference between Cal- the Calvinist and non-Calvinist interpretation of predestination and election then? Okay, so we have two primary interpretations that have dominated the issue on predestination and election. And this goes back to some of what we were talking about at the very beginning. Calvinism, so named after John Calvin, who lived in 1509 to 1564, uh, he, he was actually a guy who had a lot of poor health. He was very thin and frail. Uh, my understanding is he had a lot of digestive issues as well. Uh, he was a French theologian who later died in Geneva, Switzerland. The other option comes from uh, Arminianism, so named after Dutch theologian Jacob Arminius, uh, who lived from 1560 to 1609. He died in Oudwater in the Netherlands, Oudwater, Netherlands. And so the Calvinist interpretation holds that God chooses to save some people and condemn others by his own free will. Uh, human beings cannot resist God's movement in their lives. Therefore, those who are saved cannot help but be saved, and those who are condemned cannot help but be condemned. Therefore, there's no responsiveness or collaboration within the human effort. Salvation is all about the grace of God, and eternal condemnation is all about the justice of God. Uh, when people inquire about the fairness of the matter, though, Calvinists will assert that no one is worthy of salvation, and they're right. No one is worthy of salvation. So the fact that God saves anyone is a display of his loving nature, the Calvinist holds. So in the Calvinist interpretation, election and predestination is solely based on the work of God without any human influence whatsoever. That includes responsiveness. That includes includes, uh, human actions of faith. Uh, Therefore, foreknowledge is not the basis of God's will to predestinate. Rather, it is only by God's good free will, his own choice. And when you say, well, that doesn't sound fair, then the response is, well, who are we to say otherwise because it's God's decision? But the classic Armenian viewpoint maintains that God's election is based on his complete knowledge, Mm. on his foreknowledge, that his foreknowledge informs God of what people are going to do. Mm -hmm. But I would even argue that it goes beyond just simple foreknowledge. 
I think that if you really take into consideration that God is omniscient, that he has all complete knowledge of all things, then it can't help but inform him of what free creatures would do or what free creatures will do in the future. And that knowledge doesn't limit uh, human freedom to do that, but it's part of that infinite knowledge that God possesses Mm -hmm. of all things and all times. So in the classic non-Calvinist viewpoint, humans have the opportunity to respond to the grace of God by either accepting his free offer of, of salvation or to reject it. And by the way, this really a clear reading of scripture within this context really seems to suggest that this is the case. Mm-hmm. God foreknows what each person will do, bases his, inter- his predestined will on what he knows will happen, what he knows free creatures will do. And so many Armenian and uh, Molinist and Thomist interpreters view election as not so much based on individual election, but rather also involving a corporate election. But now I would say here, I'll give a word of caution. I think we've got to be careful not to base it all on corporate election, because I think that to have a corporate group of people to be saved, you've got to have and know that you're going to have individuals to be saved. So there you go right back to ground zero about the whole issue about whether or not individuals are elected to be saved or not. So I know a lot of people these days in the non-Calvinist camp are really looking at corporate election, and I think that's good, and I think there's a lot of merit to what they say. But logically speaking, to have a corporate group chosen to be saved, you've got to know the individuals who are going to be in that corporate group to be Mm -hmm. saved. And again, you're right back to ground zero. So God predestined a community of believers to be saved. He predestined the means by which they would be saved. And the individuals of this community are saved by receiving the grace of God working in their lives. So then since we were on corporate election... What evidence do we have for corporate election? So corporate election is used in many areas of Scripture. William Klein notes in the book Calvinism, a biblical and theological critique, God's choice of individuals is the less common way the Old Testament authors speak of election. Hmm. He says, for instance, God chose Eli's family to serve as priests Hmm. in 1 Samuel 2, verses 27 through 28. God chose the Levites as a group of priests in 1 Chronicles 15, 2. And he also chose the church to become the Israel of God in Galatians yeah. 6, 16. So it, it seems like in this case that uh, the predestination speaks more to a decision to save a group of individuals rather than just, in, uh, uh, rather than just individuals themselves. But again, the word of caution there that I would give is that in order to have a group be saved, uh, you also have to know that there will be uh, individuals. You have to know the individuals in that group who will be saved. But I do think corporate election really helps us understand well uh, what Paul is discussing in Romans chapter nine, because Romans chapter nine has often been viewed as the linchpin for the Calvinist interpretation But when you look at it within the context of what Paul is saying, when he's dealing with the the salvation of Israel, Israel being the chosen people of God, and now God moving through um, moving through the church, moving through this new covenant group of believers. The question is, then what happens to what happens to 
Israel? You know, what, what happened mm -hmm. there? Uh, did God forfeit his promises in any way? And Paul is saying, no, uh, that's not the case at all. And some people would ask, well, why did God choose Israel to bring forth the Messiah and bring forth salvation? Because, again, remember, in the time you have people coming from different areas. Uh, so that's really more what he's dealing with in Romans 9, in my interpretation of it. Uh, and we'll, we'll bring on the master blaster, Chad Thornhill, here in a few weeks uh, <laughs> in February to really hammer yeah. down. Now, he's one of those guys who know Greek very well. He's, in fact, my was my instructor of Greek in uh, the master's <laughs> program. So looking forward, I'm looking forward to hear what he has to say on this yeah. issue. Yeah. I will just say that I, I have thought about this and thought about this and thought about this and for it's just some something in my gut in my spirit every time i read romans 9 i can't get what what uh what the determinists get out of that because because in context he's talking about jewish believers he's talking about and i think you're right curtis and and the more i've read romans 9 uh, the, the more I come up with the same interpretation that you do. The, the problem is, is that up until here recently, we haven't had many, to my knowledge, we haven't had many popular resources where non-Calvinists have dealt with the yep. issues of, of Romans 9, the way we're beginning to see now. In many ways, we're seeing a renaissance of non-Calvinist voices come up and dealing with uh, to deal with these these sticky situations in Romans 9. And I think the church is going to be better for it uh, once we look at it from the perspective of what you just said, looking at this corporate group, looking at the issues going on, because it really makes a lot more sense with the flow of what Paul's saying, especially when you turn right around in chapter 10 following yep. it, and, and he reads that old creedal statement that if you shall believe that Jesus is Lord, and, and uh, believe in your heart that uh, Jesus is Lord and confess with your well, confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. I'll get it right here in a minute. But uh, that ancient confession, if you, is a conditional statement. If yep. you confess with your mouth Jesus is yep. Lord, if you believe yep. in your heart, yep. that's the antecedent. The consequent yep. is then you will be saved. If you do these things, then yeah. you will be saved. Right. And then further going on to say, Whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Whosoever yeah. call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. So it, it really, I think the the deterministic interpretation really poses a problem in my estimation, in my opinion, uh, in dealing with that uh, dichotomy that you see there. Uh, it, it creates a dichotomy that I think is very difficult. Um, and that's not to say it couldn't be worked through if that's what Paul's talking about. It's not uh, it's not a contradiction, but I think it, uh, the non-Calvinist interpretation flows a lot better than what uh, the deterministic version does. Hmm. And, and I mean, all the way through Scripture, Brian, there's an image or a picture being painted of if then kind of deal. If mm -hmm. if you do then this it, and. It's choose. It's choose the choose this path. Choose this way. Um, choose to come. Even going to this, I just thought of this when we were talking about this. It's like in Revelation twenty-two, verse seventeen says, "The Spirit and the Bride say, Come.'" 
and let the one who hears say come. Let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires to take the water of life without price. Mm. Absolutely. So, and and yeah. that's kind of the way a lot of covenants worked in the Old Testament and continues on in the New Testament. That if the people did certain things, then they would be mm-hmm. blessed. Mm-hmm. It's the blessing and curses motif you find in Deuteronomy. And I didn't even think mm-hmm. about this. You mentioned that curse that that you have these blessings and cur- uh, curses all throughout the book of Deuteronomy. Jesus quotes Deuteronomy more than any other book. Right. Yeah, uh, Deuteronomy is quoted the most by Jesus, but it's it's about that conditional covenant. If you go this route, you'll be blessed. But if you go this other route, reject the commandments, reject uh, the the um, the grace of God, then then these curses will come your way. And so the the new covenant really flows in that same manner as the as the old covenants before it, in that it's conditional. If you receive Jesus as your Savior then you will be saved. Hmm. Um, so uh, that's that's a very good point to be made there, Curtis. Yeah. So even even if corporate election is true, there seems to still be uh, an indication that individual election is at least implied. So how do non-Calvinists interpret inv- individual election? You know, I've been tossing around this idea in my mind uh, really all week. Because if you really think about it, if if God has full knowledge of all things mm-hmm. and God fully knows a group is going to be saved and God fully knows the people who are going to be in that group, then God fully knows and can choose those people to be part of that group. It's not that he doesn't love the people who aren't in that group, but he's basing that on that conditional covenant that he's given all humanity. He knows the responsiveness. And so a lot of people will say, well, doesn't that make salvation more about man than it makes about God? Absolutely not. It's completely God's plan. It's completely God's decision. Love itself, the whole institute of love itself, requires freedom of the will by both partners, one person. A reciprocation. A reciprocation of love, absolutely. It's absolutely necessary if love is to exist, is to exist, it takes both parties freely loving the other. And so to have that, you've got to, by necessity, have the ability for individuals to respond to the love of, that God provides to them. So several passages of scripture indicate that foreknowledge is involved in God's predestined plan, at least to some degree. And I believe that if you hold to, um, um, if you hold to the omniscient knowledge of God, then then you have to accept the fact that God would know, even when making this decision in times past, he would already know who's going to respond and who's not going to respond. So there's no way you can say that foreknowledge is not included in that because you're putting limitations on God's knowledge if you go that route. Right. So really you're making God a lot more limited by saying foreknowledge couldn't be included than you would by saying, you know what? God has this knowledge at all time. Whenever he's going to make creation, he knows all the ends is going to happen because he knows everything that there is to know. So mm-hmm. first Paul writes in Romans eight twenty eight through 31, mm-hmm. and I'm reading from the CSB. 
We know that all things work together for the good of those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. This is a classic passage of scripture. But keep, let's keep reading. For those he foreknew, also meaning to be foreknown, mm-hmm. the word here is prognosco, to know ahead of time. Those he foreknew, he also predestined pro mm-hmm. or, orizo, to be conformed to the image of his son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, predestined how? Because he foreknew them, he foreknew them. He also called, and those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. Notice here again how Paul interlocks divine foreknowledge with the predestined will of God. He clearly states that God predestines those who are foreknown, meaning that God knows future events, He knows contingent events. He knows free decisions made by those individuals, free responses. And so God intricately knows each person prior to his or her birth. Jesus even tells us this. Mm. Jesus tells us that God knows from times past how many hairs are upon our head or the lack thereof. Mm -hmm. He knows how many days we have on this earth. He knows how tall we are or how short we're going to be. He knows every intricate detail of our lives before we're ever born. So if God already had that knowledge, how could he not know how we would freely respond to his grace given to us? So second Peter, uh, second Simon Peter (laughs) connects the atoning work of Christ to both God's predetermined plan and his foreknowledge. Acts 2, 22 through 24 Peter says, fellow Israelites, listen to these words. This Jesus of Nazareth was a man attested to you by God with miracles, wonders, and signs that God did among you through him, just as you yourselves know. Though he was delivered up according to God's determined plan and foreknowledge, you used lawless people to nail him to a cross and kill him. God raised him up, ending the pains of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by death. Now, notice in verse 23, you find God pre, God's predetermined plan based on foreknowledge, but the free actions of individuals, they chose to crucify Jesus. So it really works hand in hand. Third, God tells the Old Testament prophet that he had chosen him prior to Jeremiah's birth, Did Jeremiah still have the opportunity to respond to the grace of God, respond to the call of God? Of course he did. Uh, But so he sees we see here. God says the word of the Lord came to me. I chose you before I formed you in the womb. I set you apart before you were born. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. Again, he had to have known Jeremiah's reaction to this, just as God also knew Pharaoh's reaction to the judgments and the grace of that he would bestow upon them at that time. Um, Fourth, here again, Peter connects foreknowledge to God's predetermined plan uh, as as individuals and to the corporate body of believers. First Peter one, one, two says Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ to those chosen living as exiles dispersed abroad in Pontus, Galatius, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, Chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Chosen, catch that, according to what? The foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit to be obedient and be sprinkled with the blood of Jesus Christ. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. Last one we'll cover here. Fifth, Paul indicates that God foreknows those 
who are his own. In 2 Timothy 2.19, nevertheless, God's solid foundation stands firm, bearing this inscription. The Lord knows those who are his and let everyone who calls on the name of the Lord turn away from wickedness. Hmm. It's, it's, you can't separate the two. God hmm. has ultimate knowledge of all things, including our free decisions and how we're going to respond to his grace. Yeah, and then you got uh, portions of Scripture where, um, for example, Jesus um, makes the claim how how Jerusalem, how I'd love to have put put you under my wings like a hen. If you would have yes. done this, I would have been able to do this. So it that gives, conditional statement right there again. Yeah, yeah, it gives it it gives those conditionals. So interesting, very very interesting. So. Uh, some Calvinists, even as soft Calvinists, and we're going to name names here, Millard Erickson. <laughs> name um, drop it. <laughs> yep. <laughs> uh, claim that foreknowledge cannot answer the problem of, of predestination. Why, why do non-Calvinists deny such accusations and accept foreknowledge as the key for understanding predestination and election? Okay, we're going to deal with three things here. So Calvinists often claim that by ascribing foreknowledge to election, human effort or merit precedes God's grace, but that's just not true. Uh, additionally, God, Calvinists often claim that the term pro, prognosco uh, implies God's relational foreknowing, which negates the non-Calvinist claim. Here again, that makes no sense because if God relationally knows people from eternity past, then he's going to know their free decisions. I mean, even with our limited knowledge, I know uh, if with our, if our limited knowledge, we can know what our family members are most likely going to choose to do before they do it. Uh, so I know if my, if my son is given the option to choose chocolate ice cream next summer or, or strawberry, more likely than not, he's going to choose chocolate. Why do I know this? Because I know my son very well. He's my son, mm -hmm. and I know that he loves chocolate. He got that from me. I got it from my mom. I mean, we, we're a family of chocolate lovers. We love chocolate. So because of my knowledge of him, I, I can my limited knowledge at that, I know what he's most likely going to choose. Well, God relationally knows us. He can know everything we're going to do, including our free decisions. So really, this, this statement doesn't hold. But Erickson writes, he says, nor is the argument that God's foreordaining based on his foreknowledge persuasive for the word yada, which seems to lie behind Paul's use of prognosco, signifies more than advanced knowledge or precognition. It carries the connotation of a very positive and intimate relationship. Well, here again, there's nothing that the non-Calvinist is saying that doesn't also indicate an intimate relationship. And furthermore, I think that if you say that God can't know these things when making this decision, then you're limiting the knowledge of God. Yeah, so there, there are several responses we can give to this accusation. Number one, as previously noted, there are numerous scriptural passages, as we've mentioned, what, four or five, I think, already, yeah, that indicate that foreknowledge is connected with divine election. Uh, thus, from a biblical warrant alone, a per person finds ample biblical support for such a notion. 
And this conception doesn't come from a singular passage of Scripture alone, but is found throughout the pages of Scripture. And I am sure, in fact, I, I took a class with Dr. Price, Randall Price, and I seemed like it was in his class that he had a book that listed out numerous passages of Scripture that detailed both uh, both this predetermination, this this plan of God, along with the freedom of the will hmm. uh, of people to do things. God knew what these people were going to do before they did it, and it was part of his plan. His knowledge hmm. did not uh, give them uh, – did not take away their opportunity to, to act in the way they did. It was a free response, but still God knew they were going to do it. So second Erickson's rebuttal does not have the force he seems to suggest – there is no denying that foreknowledge may imply foreknowing. The passages in Jeremiah and 2 Peter 2.19 indicate that much. But some passages, such as Peter's statement in Acts and 1 Peter, seem to also suggest a knowledge of future events and a knowledge of future decisions. Thus, foreknowing still relates to God's intricate knowledge of a person's physical attributes, as Jesus tells us, emotional stressors, and future decisions. So no matter if Prognosco refers to foreknowing uh, the person or, or future foreknowledge, the result is the same. God mm. knows how a person is going to respond to the primary movement of his grace. And third and finally, the Calvinist assertion that foreknowledge remains uninvolved with God's election actually does exactly the opposite of what they're trying to do. If you're saying that God's foreknowledge is uninvolved with election, then you're limiting the knowledge of God by saying that, ironically causing God to become weaker and less knowledgeable despite the attempts to assert God's absolute power and knowledge. In a manner of speaking, the argument becomes something of a self-defeated claim. The non-Calvinist notion of God's complete knowledge of all things amplifies God's decision-making ability. And that's something that as I was really working through this, it really dawned on me mm. that to say that foreknowledge can't be involved in God's decision is to essentially say that God doesn't have perfect uh, knowledge of all things. And we know as believers, as Orthodox believers, that God is not limited by time. So even when he's making this decision in times past, there's nothing we could say that would convince me, nothing that could be said that could convince me that his foreknowledge was not present. Hmm. So something that hit me right when you said that, which I mean, I, I'm just going to maybe point this out in, in question. So what you were saying is we then limit God's foreknowledge. If we hold to that view, right? What do open theists say? Well, that's a very good question, Curtis. That's an extremely good question. So open theists are going to come at this from a different perspective because they're going to strongly assert that if God knows future, what people are going to do, then they don't tru have, truly have freedom to make that decision. And so they would claim that God doesn't know future events. So God just doesn't know the future. So they eliminate God's ability to know future events and future decisions. And then truly things are open. And that's why it's called open theism. Now, with all things, there are variations 
of that claim. Some people would say that God has uh, intuition as to what's going to happen, but not complete knowledge. And there are variations. But here again, as, as something of a classis, classical theologian in many, in many respects, I believe that we can't limit the, the knowledge of God. Mm. Knowledge is just knowledge. Um, it, and it's, it's, it's kind of goes to what, uh, you know, to what, um, um, you know, Thomas Aquinas even says about potentialities and actualities. Um, God is pure actuality, but still God could know, uh, the, the, uh, the actions of people as they become, you know, reality, and that would his knowledge of those events would not necessarily, uh, would, it just not necessarily, it just wouldn't, it wouldn't uh, cause that person not to have the freedom to do that certain thing. Mm-hmm. So knowledge doesn't take away a person's freedom of the will. Just like with my son, I know I may know with great precision what type of ice cream he's going to choose or what type of Christmas present he's going to want. And it's really not going to surprise me when he says he wants what he wants, not because I have infinite knowledge, but just because of my relational knowledge with him. God, who is outside and inside space and time, could know perfectly what we're going to do and we're going to choose. (laughs) So So, here, go ahead, I'm sorry. Well, I was just going to say, I said this last week, I believe, is it okay for us to live in that tension where our brains can't take in how God could know but still allow free will? I think that's that's the very reason we ha- we have these debates. Yeah. Because we're trying to understand something that, quite frankly, is beyond our ability to fully comprehend. Now, there's nothing wrong with us trying. In fact, I think... Yeah, I was just going to say that you're not saying then just give it all up and stop trying to figure it out because it's, it says in, in, it says in the, in the scriptures, it's for Kings to discover and to find out. Absolutely. And I think that what we're doing is even though it's mind boggling and I know that we're dealing with some deep issues tonight, But still, this is a form of worship because if you have someone you love, like my son or my wife or uh, other family members, you're going to want to you're going to want to learn more about them. You're going to want to learn about the issues they have going on in their lives. You want to know more about how they operate, more about what they think as we're trying to understand these things. It's an it's a mode of worship as we're trying to learn more about our God the one who mm. revealed himself to us, the one who gave us these clues in the written word of God <laughs> and even through general revelation. So this is an act of worship we're trying to do uh, as we're trying to fully understand God. Um, mm. And that's why we need to avoid trying to burn heretics at the stake yeah. because we may eventually. <laughs> yeah. yeah we may eventually find factors, that we're burning yeah. ourselves. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So. <laughs> but we're going to burn ourselves at the stake of social media here pretty quick. I know. It's, 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 geez, it's, well, and that's very possible. Yeah, man, I'm telling you, man, it's coming. So uh, how does Thomas Aquinas understand predestination and election then? 
So Thomas Aquinas, we're dealing with different variants of the non-Calvinist notion here. And just want to give, just want to say we have options. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, now me, I, I, I like middle knowledge, I, but I like the overarching way that the provisionist methodology works, but I am still open to middle knowledge. I'm also, I consider myself largely a Thomist because I like a lot of what Thomas Aquinas says, but there's some areas that I don't agree with them. In fact, my good friend uh, and, and Bellator Christie contributor, Dr. T.J. Gentry, was talking about this this actually just last night uh, because he's well-trained on Thomas Aquinas, and I was wanting to make sure that uh, my understanding of Thomas Aquinas as I was reading through portions of the Summa Theologica was meshing with his understanding of, of Thomas Aquinas as well. So I kind of ran through some of these ideas with them and um, and and we were we were in our discussion we we came to the point where we said you know we don't have to agree with everything a theologian said to really hold to the the general basis of what they're trying to promote the, the tenets of it yeah yeah so so I'm largely a Thomist but on the issue of foreknowledge and middle knowledge I, I lean more in the Molinist camp and but overarching the overarching plan i'm probably in the provisionist camp but with that thomistic molinist leaning so i tell everybody i'm a molinist and that probably most closely identifies with with my understanding of mental knowledge but really there's a lot of thomism i accept and and provisionism i like how it's laid out as well all that being said as a big ramble to get to the point of saying um non-calvinist non-calvinists have several options on how they deal with these issues. And so um, Thomas Aquinas gives one of them. Thomas Aquinas deals with this issue with an understanding of God's will and efficient causality. Now we're getting deep. Thomas is a deeply peeled uh, is, is a, is a big onion with many layers to peel <laughs> to understand him. And so there's no way we're going to be able to give a full exegesis of Thomistic theology and philosophy tonight. Uh, but I'm just going to say this. Thomas Aquinas believes that God works in and through this to bring about the ends, a good end in the future that he has planned. And so even though he says it's not foreknowledge, it ultimately ends up being a form of foreknowledge because God sees the plan he's going to bring about. Hmm. And what Thomas Aquinas says is going to happen is he says that there's kind of like a uh, um, an asymmetrical work that's going on with the believer. It's God's desire that everybody would be saved. But with the believer, God's grace comes upon that person and that person cooperates with the grace of God bestowed upon them. But with the unbeliever, the grace of God is given, but that person pushes away or shuns the grace of God that comes in uh, that person's life. So um, so Aquinas understands that God's grace is extended to all. I have some parts of the Summa that I was going to read, but I think I'm just going to skip through this for time's sake. I may write an article on this at some point later in the future. That'd be really but, good. Um, but there's there's a lot here to to what he's saying, and I think we're we're growing, uh, we're 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 getting we're growing. Um, toward, we're getting toward the end of the podcast. What I'm trying to say. So, yeah. all that being said, Aquinas speaks of human freedom and the impossibility that God's foreknowledge could be wrong. And so God knows fully and completely what people are going to do. So some people would argue that Thomism 
could be akin to Calvinism, but I don't think that's true. I think when when you consider Aquinas's view of uh, predestination, along with his understanding of human freedom and the perfection of God's foreknowledge, then in many ways Aquinas may actually have a little more in common with some of Arminius's teachings than necessarily with Calvin's. Interesting. So, uh, how can the doctrine of divine middle knowledge help uh, help one understand predestination and election from a non-Calvinist con- uh, con- conception? When I was reading through some of the materials and I came across Millard Erickson's objection, it, it dawned on me that this is this is a way, this is another tool in our toolbox. Mm-hmm. Uh, that middle knowledge. We can say that when we talk about the foreknowledge of God being a relational, which I do believe is relational, and it being uh, individuals who are foreknown, this middle knowledge would even be applied in that instance to say that God knows the free decisions that people would make when being placed in certain situations. So if you think about God's perfect knowledge, uh, not God's knowledge of all things. He can see in the future, know things that's going to happen, but he also relationally knows as he's creating individuals what that person is going to freely choose to do at certain junctures in time, when that person's placed in time. So, uh, again, I think middle knowledge provides uh, another tool in our tool chest so God is able to elect and move through history without move, removing human freedom because of his complete knowledge of what free creatures would choose and would, would not choose. Hmm. We'll keep going, but that's that. I mean, you think about it, that's some, that's some deep stuff that really is, uh, um, worthy of looking into. And absolutely. And I think if you look at, for instance, the call of Jeremiah, I think if you even look at the call of Jeremiah, the call of Moses, and God's knowledge of Pharaoh, with Jeremiah and with Moses, God knew, even though he foreknew them in times past, he knew that they would respond positively to the call that he placed upon their lives. But he also knew Pharaoh fully and completely, and he knew that Pharaoh would harden his heart mm-hmm. against the divine grace of God. Now, there's a middle passive verb used in a lot of the texts when, when it's dealing with uh, with the hardening of Moses, I mean, of Pharaoh's heart. Uh, it, 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 in other words, it seems to imply that God is is the prime mover. He's moving to bring about to pr- apply grace or to apply to to show forth His power, to show forth right. His grace. But it's actually Pharaoh who is hardening himself against God's plan, against God's power, against His uh, grace being bestowed. Mm-hmm. So. There again, I think with the examples of Pharaoh and even in Acts where Peter is talking about to the uh, Israelite yep. leaders where God knew, God knew their free response to condemn Jesus. He knew the free response of Judas Iscariot. Uh, did God force Judas Iscariot to turn on Jesus? No, of course not. But he knew that Judas Iscariot would do that. So here again, this adds a huge tool in our tool chest as we think about 
how foreknowledge is, is not only relational, but it's also peering into the future. It's, it's both and. Mm-hmm. In that, if, when you're pointing out Pharaoh, we, we know that it says in the scriptures that, that Pharaoh hardened his heart. Pharaoh hardened his heart. And then we read God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Mm-hmm. And instantly when we were just talking about that, all I can think of is Romans 1, where God turned them over to their own destruction, turned them over to their own will, because that's the direction they were going, knowing they would not come back, knowing they would fully fill that out. Well, and here here's an area where I think Thomas Aquinas is helpful because he takes kind of an approach as Augustine of Hippo does uh, in that they look at God's grace being like the light of the sun. And mm-hmm. so the same grace, the, like, like the sunlight, the same sunlight that melts butter hardens clay. And so when the when you think of free agents – the grace of God being the prime mover, extending forth his grace to each each person is going to evoke a response by that person. So, so those who are receptive to the grace of God, when God bestows his grace upon that individual, he knows that person's going to soften their heart and freely open themselves to his grace. But he also knows that when he extends grace to that one who rejects his grace, that uh, that they're going to continue hardening themselves to the point that, as you said, you know they're they're given over uh, to a reprobate mind. So, um, but there again, it's not that God doesn't love that person. It's not that God doesn't desire to see that person saved. But we see that if if you're going to have love in its fullest form, it's got to be reciprocated. So God is love, and ultimate love requires reciprocation. And um, so I think, I, here again, I think we have so many tools in our tool chest to really help us through some of these sticky situations. Yeah. And my mind, I know we got to keep go, get going, but my mind goes back to the parable of the sower that Jesus was saying. Jesus taught that, that what soil are we? What what uh, what type of reception do we have to the gospel coming? You know, and and so are we one? Are we a path that is you know as the sower is throwing out the seed? Are we the one on the hard path? Are we in with the thorns? Are we you know? These are the things I think of when when we just were talking about that. It's it's who we are and our choices of, of how we take that in. When you think about it, too, if a person's not going to respond to God's grace on earth, you know, the, the, as I've heard some people ask the question, can a person be saved beyond the scope of this world? Well, the Bible seems to suggest that we have the option here to be mm-hmm. saved. And once we pass, then that door of grace is closed because... If a person won't respond to God's grace on earth, the question is, would they respond to God's grace in eternity? And I'm not so sure that they would um, because some people, I mean, let's be honest. We know people like this. We know there are some people out there who are so hard headed. 
that you, you could tell them that you've come across a stop sign and they'll argue with the stop sign. Uh, there are some people that, I mean, it, it becomes a matter of being unteachable. Uh, that there, that there are some people out there who were just so headstrong as to a fault that, um, they would rather be a king in hell than to be a servant in heaven. Hmm. You know, there's some people out there like that, unfortunately. Um, and hmm. so that really, God knows a person's heart. God knows, uh, where a person lies. And so, um, Again, as we mentioned before, and it really comes back to it, to have the full expression of love, it must be reciprocated. And that's why God gives us that freedom of choice. to Not mm-hmm. freedom of choice as if we choose God, but that we respond mm-hmm. to God's grace. Mm-hmm. God is the first mover. But God is the prime mover. It's God who bestows his grace upon us. Uh, what we're talking about is that we have that ability. Uh, we've been given that ability to respond to the grace that he freely gives us. And we've been given common grace, every single yes. one of us. Absolutely. Hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. So the last one, what can we take from the non-Calvinist view of predestination and election then? So non-Calvinists believe in election and predestination. However, their viewpoint of the doctrines are starkly different than that of their Calvinist counterparts. Unlike Calvinists, non-Calvinists believe that God peers into a person's responses uh, to see how a person is going to respond to his grace when selecting those who would be saved. It's God's desire that all would be saved. Okay, we need to remember that. God's desire is for all people to come to salvation, but he respects an individual's decision to resist his grace if that's chosen. Some non-Calvinists view God's election as only applying to a corporate group, uh, whereas others acknowledge divine foreknowledge as the key to God's election of of certain individuals. Some non-Calvinists see divine foreknowledge uh, see div- divine foreknowledge into the future is the only key necessary, whereas others see the doctrine of middle knowledge and other issues unlocking the enigma of the puzzle. And others still see the issue as God's deficient causality, such as Thomas Aquinas. Hmm. Nonetheless, all these viewpoints assert that God's heartfelt desires to save all people, but because of his love, he permits those who do not want his love to depart, and a clear-cut example we find in Scripture is found in the response of the rich young ruler to Jesus. The rich young ruler came to Jesus asking how to be saved. Jesus gave him the plan of salvation. Mark even tells us in his gospel that Jesus loved this guy and wanted mm-hmm. to see him saved, but the rich young ruler chose not to follow, and Jesus respected his decision. Mm-hmm. Did he want him to be saved? Absolutely, but he respected his decision. When we view these systems, it must be acknowledged that none of these concepts are perfect. I mean, Molinism is not perfect. Arminianism is not perfect. Um, So I think what we have to do is to gauge these systems to see which has the the greatest strengths and the fewest weaknesses. And when we're talking about all these things like foreknowledge, being foreknown, uh, middle knowledge, uh, knowledge of future events – I'm wondering if the if if the key may be that all of it's true, 
that God does have efficient causality in mind, that God does have foreknowledge in mind, <laughs> that this foreknowledge is also relational, that there is middle knowledge, but that all of this is taking place in ways that we can't even fully fathom. Yeah. So as I was, I was thinking about this, if I were to grade each of the systems that we've mentioned with one being the lowest and five being the highest, I think I would rank the systems as follows. Open theism, I would give a one because I think it wholeheartedly fails. I think you're giving up way too much mm-hmm. to, to uh, justify this claim, uh, the, the claim of, of uh, free free will. So I would give open theism a two. I would give, I mean, give excuse me, open theism a one. I'd give Calvinism a two. Uh, I think it's stronger than open theism, but I think it has a wealth of problems. Classic Armenianism, I would give a three. Wesleyanism, I would give a little bit higher grade. I'd give it a four. Provisionism, I would probably give a 4.3. And Thomism and Molinism, I would give both about a 4.5. And the only reason I rank that a little bit higher is I think that it's developed a little more in certain areas that provisionism is. But that's not to say that provision that provisionists can't increase that to a 4.5 and make it even higher. Right. But I'm thinking in my mind that if you were to take a blend of provisionism, Thomism and Molinism and combine them together to a congruent form, what I would call congruism, I think you would bump that up to about a 4.75. I wouldn't give mm-hmm. any system a five because I don't think any of the systems are perfect. Right. But I think there are some that are stronger than others. Yeah. And so I think that um, that's what that's the challenge we have is to really see which one best fits the biblical narrative, best fits yeah. with the most strengths and the fewest weaknesses. But where would you yeah. where would you give the grades to that, Curtis? I I think I think I I would um going back kind of just thinking about what you said, I, I would I would definitely be um with you on on open theism on calvinism i i would probably be maybe a little bit more generous to him maybe 2.5 <laughs> or so um cuz there there are some good arguments there they do have some good thoughts and some good processes but i honestly think it's lacking or in some ways, it, you go to the fullest extreme with Calvinism, and it makes God the author of some really bad things. And I yes, really sir. have a hard time with that because where does human where does human depravity come in and human uh, free will come in that that digs that depravity deeper or gets them out of that depravity? So where where's that at it's too much in scripture telling us that we have choices to make it even in our own lives even in our own salvific personal story every single person that's a christian or is saved today has a story where they were going one direction all of a sudden wow you know, I really don't like who I am. I really don't like what's going on. I don't like this. And they turn and make a change. And you know what? When they turn and repent, guess what? If they're walking on this road away from God, God is right behind them. They turn to repent, and God is right there. Mm-hmm. Powerful. Absolutely. So I would probably be... um 
a little bit more, um, you know, in that in that aspect with the Calvinism. You get into provisionism and Thomism and stuff. I would probably those ones are are pretty darn close, Brian. Um, in in what they have, um, there's just a few little minor minor things towards the end of them, um, and and truly, the provisionist which is kind of a new term, you know, um, really, uh, that provisionist type um, understanding is actually a little bit closer to the classical Baptist belief um, is what they, what they believed. Yeah. Um, yeah, so, es- especially with the more traditional viewpoint of, uh, they've been called traditional Baptists, they've been called uh, free will Baptists or missionary Baptists, but but it really does closely align with that mindset, with that thought process. Yeah, and really the, the, the kind of the linchpin in most of those is the difference between, um, you could say, uh, can you lose your salvation? Can you, right. you know, can you give it up? Or those, those little things on the tail end of that really is kind of what that ends up being. Correct. Absolutely. And that's one of the biggest distinctions between provisionism, the tra- traditional Baptist viewpoint and your classic, uh, Arminianism and Wesleyanism, uh, those really fine tune points, uh, and you probably don't have in provisionism. I don't think you have the whole notion that of, of Christian perfection on this side of eternity. Uh, it's an ongoing sanctification process. Right. But you know, Wesleyans will say that that you can be perfected to the point that you will no longer freely choose to sin. Provisionism doesn't have that. Right. Uh, it, it says it's an ongoing process of sanctification right. uh, to make us more like Christ. And when we get to heaven. That'll, that's when it'll be perfected. Yeah. Yeah. I'd have to hold that for sure. I mean, we're yeah. all still, we're all still cracked pots being held together by <laughs> pure gold of <laughs> to crack pots. <laughs> uh, might as well have a little fun with it, I suppose. huh? But yeah. <laughs> so there we have it, folks. Uh, that's kind of our uh, assessment of that. So we here at Bellator Christi want to thank you for spending time together with us, and we value that time. Our prayers that this podcast helps stretch your mind and becomes a place to strengthen your faith as we strive to create an atmosphere of discussion and become a reliable source of information to you. Join us next time on the Bellator Christi podcast. Until next time, Brian and I say, soldier on, friends. Soldier on, friends. You've been listening to the Bellator Christie Podcast with Brian Chilton and Curtis Evalo. This podcast is an exclusive production of Bellator Christie Ministries and is protected under Creative Commons copyright, all rights reserved. The views expressed on this podcast may not reflect the opinions of Bellator Christie Ministries and its affiliates. We thank you for listening and hope you'll consider leaving a positive review. To see more from Bellator Christie Ministries, Go to bellatorchristi.com.